0: Thank you, Jacob. Good morning. morning. As Jacob said, my name is Aaron, and I serve on staff here at City Light Mosaic Church. And if it is your first time, I want to welcome you here. And I just want to say I'm excited to get into the word with you all this morning. So as Jacob just read, there is a great description of destruction and tribulation in chapter six. But it ended with a question, as Jacob pointed out that I want you to keep in your mind as we continue our study this morning. The question was, who can stand? The picture we got was of people from all walks of life, kings to slaves, clamoring into the rocks and the mountains, seeking security and some kind of protection and shelter, all while crying out, who can stand? The book of Revelation can seem like a scary thing, as, as, and especially when we read chapters like chapter 6 in Revelation, as well as especially time when we're together with all the children in the room, I want to recognize that Revelation can be a scary book to read. But I want you to listen closely because there is a hope that we're going to find in chapter 7 that... As believers, we don't have to be afraid of the book of Revelation. We don't have to be afraid of what we've read in chapter 6, and chapter 7 is going to show us why that is. And so I'm excited to share this message with you all this morning, and I ask that you would open your ears to hear with me what the Lord has to speak to us. So, picking up in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says this. Excuse me. saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. From this, we get truth number one. Salvation is complete in Jesus. Salvation is complete in Jesus. Now, if you've done any study familiar with this number of 144,000 being a commonly debated topic, who are the 144,000? Why are there only 144,000 of them? Why are they being sealed? The questions that come from this number and the answers are endless. Yet, as Jacob has pointed out from the beginning of our study in Revelation, that many times, more often than not, when we read these numbers, They are to be taken not literally, but there is a purpose and a figurative uh, aspect to them. We also have to keep in mind that this book was written to a Jewish audience, and so they understood that from a Jewish perspective. There were two things that would come to your mind when you would hear the number 1,000. The first being in military terms, for the Jewish mind, they would have thought of how A basic uh, group of men in the military, uh, in an army, was a a 1,000 men. Second, the 1,000 would refer to a large number that is innumerable. The number 1,000 often speaks of immensity and an indefinite quantity. For instance, in in Psalm 50.10, the Lord is speaking of his kingship and ownership of everything, and he says this, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle, and then you got to 1,001. Because of that additional one, the Lord does not own it. No, that would not be the case. Because we know from Scripture, like this, from Psalm 50, and also throughout all Scripture, that everything belongs to the Lord, and nothing exists that is not His. Returning to our 144,000, we also see that this does not refer to a literal number of the literal tribes of Israel, because the tribes are not listed in their usual order. Instead of starting with the tribe of Dan, it starts with the tribe of Judah. And while the traditional listings of the tribes of Israel included the sons of Joseph, which were Ephraim and Manasseh, in this list, Ephraim is not listed, but Joseph is listed instead. But I want to draw your attention to start out to it starting out with the tribe of Judah. The significance here is that Judah is the tribe that Jesus came from. This list of 144,000 then points to the completion of God's work of saving his chosen people in Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to and testifies of the coming of Jesus, that God promised that he would send a savior to save mankind and the world from sin and death. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 that all the promises of God find their yes, their fulfillment and completion, in Jesus. God's promises were made complete in Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life that we never could. He obeyed the law perfectly because he did not come to destroy the law, but to complete it, to fulfill it. And when he was nailed to the cross with his dying breath, he cried out, It is finished signifying that he had completed the Father's will of him to die on the cross for our sins and that God's justice was made complete. When Jesus came, rose from the dead, he defeated death, signifying that he had, been, had won the victory and that victory was complete in him. Church, the fact that salvation is complete in Jesus is a testament to us of God's faithfulness And while it is easy sometimes to think that God is um, not faithful, that God is not fulfilling his promises because we might experience things and our feelings might say that's the case, we can be confident from God's word that we've seen time and time again that God is faithful to fulfill what he has promised. And that is why Paul was able to say in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can become, as Christians, we become discouraged because from time to time we know that we're saved, we know that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but our feelings and our experience seem to try to defy that truth when we struggle time and time again with the same sins and failures. But let me encourage you this morning from this word that if he has begun that work in you, we can be confident that he who has been faithful to fulfill every promise that he has given will be faithful to fulfill this promise of, keeping his, of continuing that work in you. So in spite of your feelings and your struggles and your shortcomings, keep pressing into the one who is working in you. Keep your eyes on the cross, which is a symbol of our covenant-keeping promise-keeping God, and be confident that His work will be completed in you as you walk with Him in obedience to what He is calling you to do. But for those of you here who have not turned and put your faith in Jesus, the same cannot be said of you. If you are depending on your own works to save you because you are a good person, the reality is our best efforts will never be able, will never be enough to save us. A life of simply being good A good person will never be complete enough to save you. Only Jesus' complete work of salvation can and will save you. And let me assure you that Jesus' complete work of salvation on the cross is enough to save you. Even if you think that you have done the worst of the worst and you're the most wicked sinner on the planet, God's work in Jesus is enough to save you. Salvation is complete in Jesus. As we read on into verse 9, we will see the answer now to the question asked at the end of chapter 6. It says this in, chapter, in verse 6, or moving on, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Truth number two, which is also our main idea for this morning, is this. The righteous in Christ will stand. The righteous in Christ will stand. So consistent with our interpretation of a thousand signifying an innumerable army of people, John looks again and now sees a great multitude of people that John says no one could number. And they are standing before Jesus. Not only that, this great multitude are from every nation, Not just from the 12 tribes of Israel, but every tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before Jesus. As Jacob has said time and time again, the reason we seek to be a diverse church is not because we think it's a great idea to be hip with the times, but because we believe that this is a picture of what heaven is going to look like. As we worship together in Spanish and English, we look forward to in, in great anticipation to what we'll, we will experience in heaven as we worship before the throne of Jesus with people from every tribe and every nation bowing before their Savior. But we also see the answer to the question of chapter 6 here the question of who can stand when death and destruction come? And the answer is those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ will stand. This group of saved and sealed saints can stand because they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and they were clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Chapter 6 laid out for us a great and impressive account of destruction. Many theologians and Bible commentators have come away with different interpretations of when these events occurred. Some say that this is still a future event to happen. Others say that this is an account This account is very similar to what happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But as of today, I don't really have a confident enough to answer to say when or when or how these events have or haven't taken place. What I do know is that throughout Scripture, there is a contrast of the wicked and the righteous. The wicked will receive judgment and be destroyed while the righteous will be spared. Even in Revelation, we see... This theme of those who are righteous and washed in the blood of the Lamb, and then contrasted to that, to the, that is the wicked who are destroyed and doomed to destruction. Scripture teaches that while Jesus did pay the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross, it is only, it's only if we repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus that we are saved. Those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus, who try to do it in their own way and control their own life, their end will be destruction. The destruction described in chapter 6 is horrific, but not as horrible as the reality of what will become of those who deny Jesus and as a result will die in their sins and will spend eternity in hell. But the truth is also that that does not have to be your end. In fact, Jesus went to the greatest lengths imaginable to, to to ensure that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus will be saved. When we repent and put our faith in Jesus, we will not face the judgment we once deserved because of our sin. This group that stands here in Revelation 7, they do that. So not because of anything that they have done, but because of their faith and trust in Jesus. And the ones here that are standing are, is all of us as we, as we have put our faith and trust in Jesus We will be able to stand in the day of judgment because because God has sent his son to die for us and we have put our faith and trust in him. Because we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, we will be able to stand in the day of judgment. But not on our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. A few years back, I was on one of those underground trains and I was standing in the middle of the train, but out of the corner of my eye, I could see that there was a seat behind me. As the train began to start, I grabbed hold of one of those bars that hangs down from the ceiling, and as we went on our way, I felt like I could stand without holding on to the support, and so I let go. Unfortunately, I was not aware, however, of how suddenly the train would stop, and as the whole car lurched forward, I found myself losing my balance. Remembering the seat behind me, I decided to allow myself to fall into the seated position on the seat, but... Unfortunately, it was not a seat that was behind me, but actually a wheelchair. And to my horror, I was now sitting on the lap of the person who owned the wheelchair. I quickly jumped up, apologized to the person, and as I was red in the face, I grabbed hold of that bar and didn't let go for the rest of the trip because I was not gonna have that happen to me again. And just like I needed that bar to help me to stand on the train, when I wasn't and when I wasn't holding on to it, I paid the penalty of that poor decision. If we are not in Jesus, we cannot stand on the day of judgment. In order to stand, we need to. We must lay hold and grasp, firm, have a firm grasp of Jesus and his righteousness and his grace that has saved us. And if we are depending on our own strength, in our own ability, we will never be able to stand. But with Jesus, we can stand. The righteous in Christ stand. As we finish the chapter, we will see the reward of those who are standing, picking up in verse 13. It says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the, lamb, in the blood of the Lamb. Those who stand find shelter and satisfaction in Jesus. Those who stand find shelter and satisfaction in Jesus. As we've seen throughout this chapter, there is a stark contrast between the experience of the wicked in chapter 6 and now those who have been saved here by Jesus in chapter 7. The destruction by the elder, I mean, sorry, the description by the elder now makes that contrast even more clear. The wicked are hopeless and desperately trying to find shelter for themselves from the wrath of the Lamb in the rocks and the mountains. The righteous multitude, however, had found shelter in Jesus as their rock, and they were confidently standing in the presence of the Lamb. I can't help but think of how much of an assurance and hope this must have been to John's original audience. They were going through immense amounts of tribulation and persecution. That's why in Revelation 1, John said that he was their companion in the tribulation and persecution they were experiencing. But here in chapter 6 and 7, they were being shown the end of the wicked and the promise of what was to come for them as they endured. The promise that even though the one who sat on the earthly throne over them was persecuting them, they were sheltered in the presence of God who sits on the throne over all. That despite their hunger and lack of food, they had all their needs satisfied in Jesus. And through the hardship, pain, and suffering, Jesus would one day wipe away every tear from their eyes. This was a message of hope to the original audience. And has been one throughout all of church history. As men and women have gladly given all, even their very lives, because they knew who awaited them in heaven. In 1956, five missionaries believed God had sent them to proclaim the gospel to the Waodoni Indians in Ecuador. One morning, they went out to make contact with them on a sandy beach, as they had done before. Only this time, unfortunately, the Waodoni believed them to be a threat, and they killed all five missionaries. These men gave their very lives because they knew the cost was not greater than the reward. One of them, a man named Jim Elliot, is famous for having written these words, which I believe captures this thought perfectly. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot, along with the other four missionaries, believed wholeheartedly that even if it meant costing them their very lives, that it was worth it, because they knew who they had received and that they would be in his presence for all of eternity. Church, we can have this same hope this morning. No matter what we may be facing, big or small, we can find shelter and satisfaction in Jesus. We may never see trials as great as persecution and death for our faith, but we all face hardship and trials in our life. Things that will test our faith. Things that will make us question if it is all real and worth it. But let me assure you, Along with the whole great cloud of witnesses of those who have gone before us, this promise of satisfaction and shelter that we will experience in the presence of Jesus is totally worth it. In the midst of our greatest trials and tribulations, we can rest assured that we are protected and secure in Jesus and that one day, one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. As I close, I am reminded of this promise in Romans eight thirty-five to 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we have been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Church, I don't know what you're facing this morning. Maybe you are experiencing something very hard and personal in your family. Or your suffering and pain has gotten to a point of uh, being unbearable to you. Or perhaps you've been in a season of waiting for so long that you've just about given up hope. But whatever your situation is, let me assure you that in the midst of that, we can find rest and satisfaction and shelter in Jesus. You can stand in Jesus. Nothing else will protect or satisfy like he can and will. And lean on the promise that we will be with Jesus in eternity one day. And for that reason alone, we are more than conquerors through whatever we go through, through him who loves us. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you and we ask that you would really solidify this truth in our hearts, that we would know that your promise is true, that your goodness is, is true, that you, that you do love us and that we do have a great um, hope to be with you for all eternity in heaven. And so we just, we just ask that you would, again, just solidify that in our hearts. Help us to um, know that. We know that and we know that that is true. And help us to walk through whatever you're calling us to walk through with boldness because you are walking with us. And we can stand because you have given us the ability to stand. So we thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus.